Good evening and welcome to eBible Fellowship's Bible Study in the Book of Revelation. Tonight will be study number 15 of Revelation chapter 1. And we're reading in Revelation chapter 1 in verse 4, John to the seven churches which are in Asia, grace be unto you in peace from him which is and which was and which is to come, and from the seven spirits which are before his throne. And as we've been making our way through this verse, we've come to the last phrase, from the seven spirits which are before his throne. That is, what God is giving to the Apostle John, this revealed word, this communication to mankind, it is coming from him, which is, was, and is to come, that is, eternal God himself, and from the seven spirits which are before his throne. And that is making these seven spirits equal with the eternal God of the Bible. And therefore, we realize, well, God doesn't share his glory with another. And certainly, there is no other author or giver of the word of God, of Scripture, than Jehovah, than eternal God. And that leads us to draw the conclusion that the seven spirits which are before his throne must be really a reference to God himself. And we would be correct in this. Uh, we find in chapter 5 of Revelation, in verse 6, that it says, And I beheld and lo, in the midst of the throne and of the four beasts, and in the midst of the elders stood a lamb, as it had been slain, having seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent forth into all the earth. The lamb, of course, is Jesus Christ. The seven horns and seven eyes are said to be a part of the lamb. That is, the vision was of a lamb as it had been slain, having seven horns and seven eyes. That is, this vision is describing a lamb with seven horns and seven eyes. And, and yet we know the lamb that was slain before the foundation of the world. Revelation 13, 8 tells us. And John the Baptist declares when he sees Jesus approaching him, Behold, the Lamb of God, which taketh away the sins of the world. That this Lamb is only Christ. And, of course, Jesus isn't a lamb, and he's definitely not a lamb with seven horns and seven eyes. But it all is language in which God is teaching spiritual things. And God goes on to say, concerning the horn, seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent forth into all the earth. So the horns and eyes are a part of the lamb and therefore belong to Christ. It is describing him and the seven spirits are those seven horns and seven eyes. And they also would be a description of the Lord Jesus, the Lamb of God. So we're very uh, safe to understand that the seven spirits which are before his throne, the throne of God, 
are a picture of Christ himself. Remember, we had looked um, a study or two ago when Hannah had given birth and the Lord had moved her to say that she that was barren hath born seven. Well, she only gave birth to one child, to Samuel, but the birth of Samuel through uh, Hannah, who previously was barren, was a picture, a type and a figure of the birth of Christ. And so the number seven is used to indicate perfection. And that's exactly why God is speaking of seven spirits before his throne to indicate the perfection of the Lord Jesus Christ or the perfection of God himself. There is a interesting historical figure of this uh, that we have in the book of Esther. So why don't we turn to Esther chapter one and we'll read a few verses here and Esther um, describes or gives information concerning the reign of King Ahasuerus, who reigned over 127 provinces. And uh, those provinces are a picture of God who reigns over all, all his elect. And Ahasuerus in the book of Esther is a, a figure of the Father of eternal God. And we see... In verse 13 and 14, something interesting. Then the king said to the wise men which knew the times, for so was the king's manner toward all that knew law and judgment. And the next unto him was Karshina, Shether, Admatha, Tarshish, Merez, Marcina, and Memucan, the seven princes of Persia and Media, which saw the king's face, and which sat the first in the kingdom. Here, God is just giving us a historical insight or, or view into the kingdom of Ahasuerus, the king of Persia. Uh, and here we find that there are seven princes of Persia and Media, which saw his face and sat first in the kingdom. Another way of saying that, is they were before the throne of the king, just as seven spirits are said to be before God's throne in Revelation 1, verse 4. And these seven princes of Median Persia are a picture or a, an illustration representing the spirit of God, which God likens to seven spirits. And we find that these princes give counsel to the king. It says in beginning in verse 19 of Esther 1, If it please the king, let there go a royal commandment from him, and let it be written among the laws of the Persians and the Medes, that it be not altered, that Vashti come no more before King Ahasuerus, and let the king give her royal estate unto another that is better than she. And when the king's decree which he shall make shall be published throughout all his empire, for it is great, all the wives shall give to their husbands honor, both to great and small. And the saying pleased the king and the princes, and the king did according to the word of Memucan. The uh, seven princes would give the king counsel, and as we see here, he would accept their counsel and act upon it. 
and this uh, is pointing to the council within the Godhead, as God is one God, but likens himself to three persons, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And so the seven spirits are before God, and it is as though they are counseling him, and that is because it is God himself that is typified by these seven spirits. Well, let's go back to Revelation 1 and move to the next verse, verse 5. And that verse says, And from Jesus Christ, who is the faithful witness and the first begotten of the dead and the prince of the kings of the earth, unto him that loved us and washed us from our sins in his own blood. Well, this verse is just full of tremendous truth of great spiritual information. Every statement is just dripping with with all sorts of doctrine that God is teaching us. Let's take it statement by statement and begin it at the very beginning of the verse. And from Jesus Christ, who is the faithful witness. And this word faithful is found many times in the Bible. But there's one place in particular that will help us a good deal in understanding what God is saying here about the Lord Jesus Christ. And that is in Proverbs 14, in verse 5, where it says, A faithful witness will not lie, but a false witness will utter lies. That's very simple and and uh, very straightforward, where God defines exactly what a faithful witness is. A faithful witness will not lie. And, of course, Christ is the faithful witness. He is the one who the Bible says is the truth himself. He has never spoken a lie. Everything that Christ says is absolutely true and faithful altogether. And that uh, is wonderful news because... Jesus is the Word made flesh, which means that everything the Bible says is absolutely true and faithful altogether from beginning to end. All Scripture is true, and all Scripture really is the faithful witness of God, the testimony of God to the things that he has said. So we're very confident that Jesus meets the qualification, a faithful witness will not lie. And this is true of him, and God makes it true of his people. He causes his people to be faithful as they search the scriptures, they endeavor, they attempt with uh, everything within them, to be faithful, because that's the nature of the Savior that they serve. That's the nature of God himself. That's the nature of the Spirit that God has placed within them. They are not false witnesses, but they become true witnesses to the things that God has said in his word. And and God teaches them and, and then sends them forth to share the testimony of the gospel 
with the world, with those around them, to share truth with all that they meet. And it, it all stems from the faithful witness who is the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, we also read in Revelation chapter 19, it says in verse 11, I saw heaven open, and behold, a white horse. And he that sat upon him was called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he doth judge and make war. This is describing Christ as he is coming as the judge of the earth. And notice that he is called faithful and true. And it also says of the word of God that these things are faithful and true. Uh, What is said of one is said of the other. Both things are true of Christ and true of the word of God. But here we see that Jesus's name is faithful. He embodies faithfulness just as he embodies truth. And and since he is truth, of course, faithfulness goes hand in hand with that. And so this is the wonderful thing about Christ and about the word of God, that it is faithful and true. And the testimony that we read everywhere throughout the scripture is the testimony of Jesus. And we can be sure that we can trust it with all of our hearts, with all of our lives. We can lean upon it completely. Now, of course, the question is, and always has been down through time, for those that hear the teachings of the Bible, is what I am hearing true and faithful? That is, is this the voice of Christ? Because he is faithful and true. And and so the believer listens intently, carefully. We're listening when we hear teaching. We want to know, is this the word of God? Is this the the Lord Jesus Christ? That, that's one reason why the gospel can be known as Christ. That is a synonym that God uses to describe the gospel is Christ himself. Because the gospel, the teaching of the Bible, is faithful and true, and he is faithful and true. And as believers, we have a responsibility. It is our duty and obligation. And God teaches us to do this, to check out what we're hearing and to search the scriptures. As we have the example of the Bereans in the book of Acts to see if the things we're hearing are so. And so we hear a teaching, we turn to the Bible and we check it out. It is God saying this in his word. And as we check it out, we realize, okay, this thing checks out and this thing checks out and the other. And so we can begin to develop some confidence in uh, the ministry or teacher that is teaching. But we never develop a confidence in the teacher or ministry to the point where we disregard checking things out we must always continue that process in examining what we're hearing to see if it is indeed uh, in line with the bible 
It matches and harmonizes with the scripture and is not out of place at all. God tells us to do this, for instance, in 1 John uh, chapter 4, verse 1. Beloved, believe not every spirit, but try the spirits whether they are of God, because many false prophets are gone out into the world. And how do we try the spirits? Again, we listen to what was said. All right, this is the doctrine that this individual has said God is teaching, that the Bible teaches. Then we take the verses the individual used to prove it. We go to the Bible and we see if the idea, if the verses will stand up under the scrutiny of the Bible. Will they be in agreement with everything else the Bible says? Is there another verse somewhere that disproves the conclusion and therefore um, would mean that it is not a true teaching? And these are the things that the believer is busy with. One of the things we're occupying with as we continue digging into the word of God as for hid treasure and uh, we're we're delighting in the task that the God, that the Lord has given us to find the hidden mysteries of the gospel. Well, let's continue on in verse 5 of Revelation 1. And from Jesus Christ, who is the faithful witness and the first begotten of the dead. Now, this statement of God is not a little statement at all. Uh, where the Lord has just told us that Jesus Christ is the first begotten of the dead. Now, this particular Greek word, protos tokos, it's a compound word, protos. Uh, we get our English word prototype from that word. It means first or before. And tokos would be the word that means born, first born and it's found nine times in the new testament two times prototokos is found concerning the birth of christ uh, where it says of mary she had brought forth her firstborn son it's speaking of mary's firstborn but not the firstborn of god even though it is referring to Jesus, we we can't say, well, that's the instance where Christ is firstborn. That is not what this verse is telling us, that Jesus is the first begotten or the firstborn of the dead. And, and that's saying something different. Now, let's look at several of these references by beginning in the book of Romans in chapter 8, and we'll look at verse 29, where it says, For whom he did foreknow, he also did predestinate to be conformed to the image of his Son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. And that's the same Greek word, firstborn, here is a translation of protos tokos, and we find again in Hebrews chapter 12, the same Greek word in verse 23, 
to the General Assembly and Church of the Firstborn, which are written in heaven, and to God the Judge of all, and to the spirits of just men made perfect. Here, and in Romans 8, where it said the firstborn among many brethren, God is referring to the elect, the General Assembly and Church of the Firstborn. Jesus is the Firstborn. And all those that God has saved, all of the elect, who uh, it was his decision to save as he made selection before the world began, he predestinated certain ones to receive his salvation and to be the church of the firstborn. This is referring to the eternal church. It's not the corporate church, the outward physical church that we see on street corners in this world, but to the invisible, eternal church comprised only of God's elect. We are all, if we're truly a child of God, a member of the church of the firstborn. And that firstborn individual is the Lord Jesus Christ. We could substitute his name there, and we are the church of Christ. Yet, when God says that he is firstborn, he has something very particular in mind, as we saw in our verse in Revelation 1, verse 5, the first begotten of the dead. That is where uh, or how Jesus is considered to be the firstborn. It says in Colossians, and um, there's a passage here in the book of Colossians, chapter 1, that helps us to understand this phrase, the firstborn or first begotten of the dead. And beginning in verse 15, speaking of Christ, who is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of every creature. And that is the same word we're looking at, but it'll be used again a little further down. For by him were all things created that are in heaven and that are in earth, visible and invisible, whether they be thrones or dominions or principalities or powers, all things were created by him and for him, and he is before all things, and by him all things consist, and he is the head of the body, the church, who is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in all things he might have the preeminence. Here, once again, Jesus is said to be the firstborn from the dead. Notice concerning the church, the body of Christ. And, and again, this would be the invisible, eternal church of the elect. That Jesus is the beginning the firstborn from the dead. That is very important. And so important that God goes on to say that in all things he might have the preeminence. That is, he is before all things. And, and that is a, a very significant and important point when we speak of the death of Christ and the resurrection from the dead. Jesus 
was preeminent. He had to be, in other words, the firstborn from the dead. Well, how does that affect things? We know that Jesus rose from the dead in 33 AD, an individual might say. So he was the firstborn from the dead in 33 AD. Well, no, no, that's not possible. Because if Christ rose from the dead in 33 AD, we have all sorts of problems with the scripture. Things will not harmonize and, and even simple statements such as uh, Christ being called the Son of God make no sense if Jesus rose from the dead in 33 AD and was, was declared to be the Son then then how could he have created the world as the Son of God? How could he have entered into the human race before he went to the cross and before he rose and God say of him that he is his only begotten Son in whom he is well pleased? The Lord says his only begotten, but the reference to begotten is referring to the fact that he is the firstborn and where is Christ said to be firstborn from? The dead. He he is called the first begotten of the dead. That is, God, as it were, recognizes him as his son once Jesus rose from the dead, and not before. So you can see, if Jesus rose from the dead in 33 AD, after 11,000 years of history, well, we have all sorts of contradictions, not to mention that there were other individuals that had previously risen from the dead. And we read about them in the Bible, that there was a young boy in the Old Testament that rose from the dead. And during the ministry of Christ, there were a few individuals that he uh, cause to rise from the dead. And and Jesus rose from the dead in 33 AD. After them, he would not have the preeminence. He must be the firstborn, not the second or fifth or tenth. It had to be that he was first to rise from the dead. Well, when we get together in our next study, we'll continue looking at this very interesting and important teaching of the Word of God.